This podcast is sponsored by the Club Women's Network. It can be lonely working for yourself, so this online support and learning network is here to help women learn what they need to know to stay in business. They meet online twice a month and in-person meetups too. They teach you everything from reels to financial forecasting. For more information, check out theclubwomensnetwork.com. Welcome to the Mum Mind Podcast, or how to stop your mother falling out of your mouth. I'm Steph McSherry, I'm a mum of two, I'm a preschool activity and behaviour specialist, and I created Kinderama to support that age group. I'm Bethan, I'm a psychotherapist, I'm a mum of three, and I run the online parenting support, the CAM Parenting Community. Every week, Steph and I answer one of your parenting questions and come up with practical solutions from our experience and our joint wisdom as parents, because between us we have five children. Uh, if you want us to answer one of your questions, email us, themummind at gmail.com. Except we're not doing any of that today. You might, we might, those with keen ears might go, oh, they sound different. <laughs> we actually got all professional and hired a studio. <laughs> Only took us an hour and 40 minutes to figure out oh, what to do. <laughs> the technical side is, is a bit of a headache, but we're here now and we decided we'd do something a little bit different with these kind of few episodes that we're recording in here today. And we decided we'd do like a get to know you because although we burst into your eardrums on a weekly basis with all our worldly wisdom we figured you probably don't know a huge amount about us yep. who are these cork blow-ins <laughs> who are they because I know you know I'm English obviously and you're obviously Scottish which yes. you're a more exceptional blow-in than me <laughs> <laughs> as far as cork is concerned but we, today we're going to get to know, I feel like I need a Bethan O'Riordan. Oh, do I get to go first? You Super do. duper. You okay, do. what do you want to know? Uh, let's start with the basics, shall we? Shoe size five and a half, sometimes a six. Yeah, and I find the older <laughs> the older I get, the bigger shoe size I take. Uh, I didn't no. know that happened. What is going on with this? Bigger oh. bra size as well. Yeah, we won't even get started <laughs> on the bras. I met a lady this week called the Booby Physio. Oh. It's all about posture and bras. I loved it. I was there grilling her at the dinner table. Very important. Very important. We might have her on the podcast. Okay. Bo- boobs are all important. <laughs> so how does a blow-in from Scotland end up here. Where did you come from? Where were you born? Okay, I was born in Hull. Oh, not what I was expecting. <laughs> There's not a Hull accent you have there. <laughs> yeah, my mum and dad were passing through, so that's where I came out. <laughs> that's where you dropped out. That's where I dropped so out like into this. the world. So Hull, for those that don't know, is kind of Yorkshire. Yorkshire. Yeah, oh Christ, I, I don't, I'm not sure even I knew that, although I did yeah. know that. And then I lived outside London till I was seven. And then, I mean, because this is mine, because you don't even know this about no, me. No, I know. That's kind of weird. Go on, keep telling me. And then I moved to Aberdeen when I was eight. So hang on, your parents aren't Scottish? No, my mum is from Wales and my dad is from the Isle of Man. Wow, I didn't know that. You did. I said it on last week's <laughs> podcast. Oh, yes. Look, I don't retain any information. This okay. is what I say to my husband. You know, they always say in relationships, men don't listen. I mean, very stereotypical. But um, I'm the one who doesn't, I do listen, but I say to him, I don't retain. Yeah, but I also think women have so much information that they're trying to retain all the time that there's just an overload and an overspill yeah. that just gets left behind. Yeah, I know, I mean, we're all alive. Everyone has eaten to date and et cetera, et cetera. Brilliant. Um, so yeah, moved to Aberdeen when I was eight. 
I then moved to Edinburgh when I was 17. I left school um, and I literally just... Did you know what you wanted to do at school? I just wanted to leave school. Oh, okay. That's you didn't enjoy what I knew school. I wanted to do. Yeah, but I've later found out I'm really dyslexic. Oh. So the whole thing makes sense. The best subject that I did was, I don't know if this is relevant at all, but I often think about this, is um, classical studies where we studied Greek and Roman mythology. Oh. So it was storytelling. Yeah, nice. That was my best thing was telling stories, which sort of makes sense now, right? Ooh. And listening to stories. So I, school was really, really hard for me, like words swimming around on pages, just couldn't, I mean, couldn't wrap my head around it. But I left with enough qualifications to get to university, but I wanted money. So I left when I was 17 and I did loads of waitressing, moved down to Edinburgh, did loads more waitressing, had a great old time, but really hard work. Mm. You know, waitressing is like, do you know, doing split shifts nine till two, then back in six till two in the morning. Yeah. You know, long so hours on your feet. Yeah, but amazing work as well, meeting all these different people. And in and in Edinburgh, there's the Edinburgh Festival. Mm. So there's like like a million people come to Edinburgh. So I've met people from all over the world. It was so exciting. And then I went to university, I studied communications. I mean, I'm still not quite sure what I studied for four years, but I studied and I passed. <laughs> you just wanted to go. I just wanted to go. Then I moved to Australia with a boyfriend. And I didn't know that. Yeah. Whereabouts in Australia? So we landed. So he was from, he had a dad who lived in the Orkney Islands and a mum who lived in Brisbane. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is so mad. <laughs> so, yeah. So I started to go out with him in Edinburgh and then he was like oh I really want to see my mom I haven't seen my mom in years but I knew I wanted to break up with him and then when we landed in Australia his mom was like oh hi and you're my new daughter-in-law <laughs> well not quite <laughs> and told him that his auntie had cancer and I was like oh god I can't really break up with him now god. <laughs> I mean I was 21 yeah, I was okay. you know you're different yeah so anyway, we split up and I travelled around Australia. I met a German girl who was on the bunk bed opposite and above from me in a hostel. And she bought a car, a Ford Falcon panel van. They still got them in Home and Away. And there was a bed in the back of it that you, you kind of cut the base of your spine to get in and out of the van because the gap was only like about 50 centimetres. And you <laughs> had some mad idea of travelling somewhere in this van, I'm assuming. We drove all the way around Australia. <laughs> Well, actually, that's untrue. She did. I drove from um, Perth uh, around the west and stopped at Cairns, and that's where we sold the car. Wow. Yeah. So we, I mean, it was just the two of us. And then <laughs> I remember my mom phoned me once and she was like, I've just been speaking to someone and they said it's very dangerous what you're doing. I mean, it probably was. We had no yeah. spare tire. Oh, yeah. Most of the time we were in, I mean... Like, uh, what, tumbleweed. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there was literally tumbleweed coming across the, the car. Old kangaroo. In front, the, lots of kangaroo. And I remember I was always really scared to go for a wee in the night, a bush wee, we called it. And I was like, what if a kangaroo nibbled my bottom? Never mind the kangaroo. What about a snake or a spider? Well, that didn't come into our wow. mind at all. Oh um, so that took eight months. That was wow. eight months of my life. And came back totally broke. And still unable to surf properly. Could kind of surf, but not quite. 
And then I moved to Leeds. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All very random. Totally random. Like you throw darts at a map. I'll go here next. I mean, that was pretty much what I did, yeah. Steph. Yeah, yeah, that was it. So, but kind of because, so let's let's rewind. After Hull, I lived just outside London, like maybe 45 minutes outside London. And I went to preschool with a girl called Chloe. And Chloe lived in Leeds at the age of 22. Oh. So I moved to Leeds because Chloe lived in Leeds. So I was like, oh, I'll just go and see Chloe. And she'd been traveling around. She did loads of traveling, then went to university. So she'd yeah. been traveling around America by herself on Greyhound buses. So Chloe's like, uh, I don't know, a, a, an adventurer. Yeah. So she got that I was just back from Australia and was like, what do I do? with? I've just lived in a van for like eight months. What do I do now? And I studied. Oh, my God, I have no idea what I studied. Youth and community work. Oh. Right. I did a diploma, which halfway through my lecturer said, you already have a degree. Why aren't you doing a master's? And I was like, I don't know. I just didn't research it that well. <laughs> yeah, my degree is in something completely different. <laughs> yeah. And so then I ended up on a placement working in um, in a, a drug needle exchange clinic. And that's probably when my career started. Do I have a and is is that what you thought, like, is that the first thing that kind of sparked, oh, I find this really interesting? Yeah, well, I worked in, I volunteered in two places. I volunteered with, like, a community group for girls, and they got, it's awful names, like, disaffected youths, oh, nice. and all these, I was like, disinfected youths? And they were like, no, disaffected youths, and all Different. these kind of, you know, all these, like, buzzy words for, yeah. like, you know basically a society that can't support everybody you know mm. and and I loved that I met these girls there who were amazing and um and then I got paid employment with them as well and I ended up taking a group of girls to Downing Street we won a prize we won a prize for this national competition around you had to make a video about something and I said well let's do it about money and so they had like this the girls come up with like this devil angel theme yeah. And these were girls who'd lived in care for a long time and got been, you know, been removed from the family home or who'd been sexually abused at a young age and, you know, like really hard stuff or had babies when they were maybe 12 and 13. Yeah. So, um, so this is like an amazing thing. So we were all off to Downing Street and we met Ed Balls, you know. Oh my God. And it was so funny, one of the girls. So they had like these little nibbles on a tray. And they had like, you know, mini fish and chips, like fancy food. Canapé type canapes. things. Canapés. And yeah. one of the girls said, oh, my nana told me not to eat the food because it'll probably give me the runs. <laughs> she said that to the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to, to Ed Balls. Lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Um, so I did that. He and... probably remembers that to this yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I worked in the needle exchange as well. And I remember seeing poverty like I'd never seen poverty before. You know, like... Oh, I remember going into like, you know, building blo um, tower blocks. Mm. And the guy with me was a, a guy, Don, who was from Ireland somewhere. Now I don't know where. I'd love to try and find Don again. But he had loads of experience working in the addiction field. And it was a needle exchange clinic for um, steroid users as well. And a needle exchange, I'm assuming this is probably nearly 20 years ago. That was quite a forward thinking thing. 
Yeah, but not really for England at the time. Okay. I mean, just 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 sort of different from here. And when I so so needle exchange was for people who were injecting any drugs, basically. Okay. So we were kind of I think advising is probably the law the wrong legal term, but I had to do lots of training around veins and arteries and how not to die when you injected drugs because your veins and arteries are kind of intertwined, mm. and if you pierce an artery, you're goosed because yeah. you lose, you die from blood. You know, teaching people how to use tourniquets um, for and, and you know, the, I, I don't know what happened. But when I was there, I, I met so many people who only had one leg and it was because they'd used like a belt tourniquet, injected the drugs and passed out and then the blood flow stopped. Yeah, not released the tourniquet. Yeah. So we used to t- try and show people how to do it with like a silk scarf instead. So even if you pass out, the silk will, will release yeah. naturally itself. I didn't see so much of that when I moved to Dublin. But anyway, so and and, and go, going into these, because um, we did outreach work. So I drove a big blue bus delivering needles around. You know, we would take their old needles. We would have a chat with them. Loads of men showing me um, their ball sacks because... <laughs> Because oh. because because that's where you would inject in your groin would be very close to your testicles. Okay. So they sort of move their jocks to one side. Nice. And I'd be like, well, if you could just hold, if you could just put your package to one side. That, how <laughs> you old know? were you when you are doing this? Um, 24. Wow. 24, 25. That's some side of life to see when you're 24, 25. Yeah, yeah, pro- probably so. But I feel like in some way it wasn't too unfamiliar because one of my friends gone off the rails when I was 14 okay so I had actually seen a lot of it when I was maybe 15 anyway okay so it was like yeah but it was it wasn't shocking to you no not at all and um but going into these tower blocks and Don saying to me now Bethan we're just going to go in a lift and we're going to go to see this person in their flat and and, and and I mean, the people, they were just, I'll never forget Tommy when he was a man in his 50s. I don't know how he was still alive, you know, just crawling with lice, nits, you name it, going into his flat. And it was a council flat. I didn't even know how he managed to pay the bills, but no flooring and just one chair, you know, and he's covered in bed sores and all different kinds of this, that and the other. And just so sad, you know, just so sad. I was like, oh, gosh. But in the lift on the way up. The lift broke. <laughs> I remember I was like, Don, I'm so scared. But Don was a bodybuilder, so he totally had me covered. And then I looked up and there was blood dripping off the roof. Oh, um, I was getting a roof and a ceiling mixed up. The ceiling. Of the lift. Of the lift from where people had been injecting drugs and then just kind of, wow. you know. And I remember the smell. I always, I mean, did you think this is where this chat was going to no. go, Steph? No. <laughs> Do and we need to record another podcast there are, for Bethan's life? There are certain smells, though, that you can still... Congealed blood. Yeah. The smell of congealed blood is incredible. So I worked there, got loads of experience, and it was very fit. I cycled over. I didn't have a car then, so I would cycle for like two hours a day. And then a boy came over to see me, a man called Steve, who we'd met in Australia and said, Beth, I can't stop thinking about you. I think I'm in love with you. And I said, fine, I'll move to Dublin then. So, oh, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Steve came from Australia. No, he lived in Dublin. Oh, I see. But and we you met, met in, in Australia. Australia. And he came and found you in Leeds. Yeah, we didn't find him. I mean, he knew yeah. I was there. But yeah, he came over to Leeds oh, and was like, I can't stop thinking about you. Will you come? And and, and, and I was very like, romantic, I, except I know you're not married to Steve. <laughs> 
So now we're all wondering what happened to Steve. So then I moved to Dublin. And I mean, like I finished my finished my diploma and I probably had a job in the needle exchange place, but just said, look, and it was great. They sent me a card saying, enjoy the crack, not the crack. Because it was a needle exchange. Ha 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 ha. You know, but it was very forward thinking. There was like... There was doctors. So we all worked in this old kind of like Victorian style building together. And one half was us in the needle exchange and the other half was the doctors and the community workers. And you could just get prescribed methadone within 24 hours. This isn't in Dublin? No, in Leeds. Oh, okay. So it was really, it probably was really forward thinking at the time. You know, there was no, yes, there was treatments for wait lists, but I wasn't involved in that. So I don't know about that really. But it was great. I loved being there. So they sent me enjoy the crack, not the crack. Yeah. Not that I've ever taken crack, but you know, <laughs> not that I'm saying here. No, I haven't. So then you I had no to job t- to come to. You came, came for love. I came for love. And I remember I had £750 with me. That was all the money I had in the world. Wow. Right. That was it. And it was because I found a premium bond, right? That's like a really yeah, yeah. British thing. That my godmother, who since had died when I was like 14, had set up for me when I was born. And I just found this sheet of paper and I thought, I wonder how much that is. And by the time I was 24, it was was £750. So that was enough. So I moved in with Steve and two weeks later I moved out from living with Steve. Steve Steve is no longer part of the scene, I get it. We were not meant to be. But that was fine. That was life. And um, I I went for a job interview, right, with the Peter McVerry Trust. And I remember in the interview they said, how would you feel if we offered you full-time work? And I said, I thought the job was for full-time work. <laughs> they said, no, oh, this is to be part of the panel for relief work. And I was like, well, I really need full-time work, guys. I'm, 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 uh, uh, I can't mess around here. I found a room in a house with three other girls. Excellent. And got a job with the Peter McVerry Trust, working in an aftercare house for, so doing residential work, which means you go to a house and you stay for 12 hours or you stay for two days and you sleep. I mean, sleep is, you don't really sleep, not because there's not wild, there's nothing wild going on, but just because it's really tricky to sleep when you're kind of in a work environment with the door locked and all the rest of it. Is this like a halfway house for people in the addiction services or homelessness services or both? Both, Both, yeah. So it's whenever you complete a treatment programme, it's, I think, I I don't know, I haven't worked and I haven't seen the research of this for a long time, but it's like if you just go straight back into the community that you came from, Mm. your chances of relapse are really high. Yeah. But people could move into this aftercare house for six months at a time. Wow, okay. So people stayed for six months, did like a day program that resourced them to have skills to live in life without being an addiction. And yeah. sometimes it was really practical skills like, um, I don't know, one guy kept putting his hand in the in the pan. Oh, in the, like cook, the frying pan. That you'd cook sausages in Would and you got the fat. It was cooled down to oh. style his hair. Oh. I said, come, we'll take you to the shop and I'll show you a hair gel. He was like, whoa, my mind is blown. It will smell much nicer. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than walking around smelling like a sausage. Yeah, so I did that and then I met Rich. And how did you two meet? In a pub. In a, in, in a pub. In a pub. In a, well, do you know what? We met, so I did a 10 kilometre fun run to raise money for the charity I worked for. Okay. 
And I was really fit at the time, so I did no training. I just pitched up and ran it. Like you do. Like you do. 10K. Yeah, and it took me a long time. It took me like an hour and 20 minutes or something. And then I I went on a night out and I went up to this very tall man and said, my leg's really sore. I did this 10 kilometer fun run and I think I've torn a muscle. And then two weeks later, um, this very tall man came up to me at the dog races and said, how's your leg? And I was like, what? How's my leg? Who are you? And it was him. Oh, so that was that. And then we we had 2K. We got we got married. Hang on, because he's from Cork. Yes. And you met in Dublin. Yeah. So what was he doing in Dublin just because I'm nosy? He was working. Oh, okay. I don't know what he was. I mean, he doesn't even know what he was working as, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> Sounds dodgy. <laughs> it was something to do with funds. Okay. I mean. Money. Money. Okay. But he hated that. So he, we, so I had a flat in Dublin. He moved in with me. We had two kids. We needed to move out of this flat. Realised we couldn't afford to live in Dublin anymore. Yeah. And moved down to Cork. Back to kind of his home place area. That's how we ended up here. I got a job as a community um, drugs and alcohol worker in Farronry. Did that for a bit. Had my third baby and my third baby was really unwell. So then I had to quit work because although my work were really flexible, I was I was always on edge waiting for hospital appointments. Always because, you know, in the hospital say... Okay, you have a slot on the MRI machine, keep your phone on. It's really hard to kind of dial down from that. Yeah. So then I just quit my job. I remember remember one day this social care student came in and she was like, I have so many ideas about how I'm going to change the social care system. And she was so pumped. I was like, oh, that was me in 2007 when I moved to Dublin. That was me. So I quit that day. I didn't tell my husband. I just said, and after childcare, I think I was paid a fiver an hour after tax and all. So I, what I get from that is that you you had become so despondent about the system and you could see in her that she had the passion and the drive that is needed in that kind of job and you yeah. were done. Yeah, and, and I think like I still love the one-to-one work with the clients and I gave that like 100%. But I was also a kind of like... Well, I was a mum of three by that point. So all the kind of crazy hardcore stuff that I've been part of up until that point, I was fine with. But then when I became a mum of three, something changed, right? Where I was like, I can't look after my kids and have the capacity to look after eight other people every day who are in crisis and look after myself and be married and be a wife and... Yeah, because all, know, of the and work, a friend. all of the work that you've done, it's very much, I don't think you can do it if you take that home with you every day. Yeah. You need to be able to park it and leave it at work. Yeah, and I think I burnt out twice. Yeah. I remember once I took a month off. Um, But, I mean, that, honestly, it's probably because I was just partying too much as well. Well, <laughs> like, yeah. Burning the candle you know, both ends. It, but yeah. all ends possible. You know, like I would work really hard and then I would go out all weekend and but I think with the nature of shift work as well that added another dynamic so I remember once I took a month off and went to stay with a friend in Germany Nina who I traveled around Australia with and that was great and the second time I didn't totally burn out I was just like oh I just really need a break from this (laughs) 
The CAM Parenting Community is my online support for parents. It's waitlist free and inside is myself and a child and family therapist. So together we offer you 42 years experience helping children and family to solve your parenting problems. If you want to join us, head to my website, bethanoreardon.com and be the change your children need. So at some point, did you retrain? Because you, you're obviously oh, yeah, God, qualified. Yeah, I, trained, I trained to be a psychotherapist in the middle of all that. So I trained in Dublin. Oh, okay. Yeah, God. which took forever. With two kids and working in addiction services. I didn't have the kids when I started out, but it took, it takes like six years to be a therapist. Wow. It took me six years to be a therapist. Okay. It's like a big deal. Yeah. You know, it's not like a weekend course in... Yeah, now I'm qualified. Yeah, a re- really big thing because a huge part of it is, is that you have to do a hundred hours of therapy on yourself. Yeah. So if you go once a week, that's two years anyway, which you don't go once a week because then you'd be there like Christmas week, (laughs) Christmas day. So, yeah. And I was thinking about it now. I'd say I'd probably been in therapy for over, I don't know, like five, six, seven hundred hours of therapy I've had on myself. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, See, I did retrain as a psychotherapist. Good point. Well made. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Not just winging it. (laughs) Not just winging it. And it was probably my experience with Ramsey, who is my youngest, I don't mind saying. Um, and, and it's great whenever we leave anything anywhere, people in the playground, you know, they'll pick up a coat with the name Ramsey on it. And they're like, I'm guessing this is yours, Beth. And I don't know any other Ramseys. <laughs> it's a great name. Yeah. I love it. So I'm like, oh, cool. And the funny thing is in Scotland, Ramsey could be quite a posh name. Ooh. It could be like a Ramsey. Like a posh solicitor or something, so it could, here it I don't know it conjures up. No, I was going to say something. It's, it comes across as rude, but sheep farmer. Like, oh, really? I, yeah, like as in like a I, ram. Well, I guess ram? yeah, but as in something hearty and working hard. I don't think I don't get the posh vibe. It's not. Yeah. I think it could be like a folk singer or something. Yes, now yeah. we have Ramsey or Reardon. <laughs> <laughs> doing a bit of Johnny Cash. Um, so yeah, but I think when I had Ramsey, so he was born and he cried like a lot I mean like really he cried like 18 hours a day for two and a half years every single day you know like there was no break and I remember thinking this isn't right and nobody could help me I mean I went round to so many different people and no one could tell me what is up with Ramsey and it turned out when he was four months old we went on holiday we went to Kelly's in Ross Lair because if you had kids under a certain age, they were free. Mm. So we made the most of this. Uh, or, or they were like half price or something. They weren't expecting you to bring three of them. Yeah. <laughs> we're all here yeah. together. Bye. And I remember one day I went into his room, all three of the kids. I said three kids under three. Yeah. Well, the oldest was three and a half. But and I remember I put I filmed Ramsey waking up. I put a camera in his cot and I saw that he was having seizures. So that was the thing. That was what and I remember I would hold him like anyone else who has more than one kid, or even if you've got one kid, I would just always hold Ramsey like a rugby ball under my arm. Yeah. Because I didn't you know, I'm trying to cook a dinner or, you know, wiping a bomb or I don't playing a game, whatever. And I could all I was always saying you know, to my husband, God, he's really wriggly in my arms. I can't figure out what's going on. And it was that he was having seizures in my arms. And everyone had missed this. Yeah. Medically. 
Yeah, I mean, because people were like, I remember sitting in the floor of the GP practice with my other two kids being there because we will record another podcast on recording with no family around as well. Mm. Um, so I had a three-year-old, a two-year-old, or so I, do you know what? I didn't even know what I had. Something like that. Two kids up and moving anyway. And Ramsey trying to breastfeed. I had one boob that was just like hanging out because I was trying to get the other one to stop doing something. And he cried and he cried and cried. I remember the receptionist came over and she said, Beth, we're going to have to move you upstairs because this is a bit distressing for everybody. <laughs> and I thought, did you not want to turn around and say, how the do you think it feels for me? Yeah, I was like, okay. So then I went, I remember the two doctors were like, Beth, he's just a really cross baby. What can you do? And I phoned the public health nurse. So I tried to do all these little tests myself where I was like, so I was breastfeeding him. And one day I tried to give him a bottle and he only had an ounce in 24 hours. Oh so I phoned God. the public health nurse and she was like, oh, you need to give him a bit of broccoli. And to this day, oh my God. Do, you know, do you know when they say Ross and Rachel in Friends, when they're like, we were on a break and it like reverberates through Central Park and there's pigeons flying. This is how I feel in that moment. I'm yeah. like, I can't, every time I look at broccoli, I get very passive aggressive with the broccoli on the chopping board. But I knew there was something wrong and I filmed him and through the jigs and reels of life, I sent a video to a friend who passed it to a friend who worked in the hospital on Friday at half ten and we were in the hospital at half nine Monday morning, CUH, being told your son will probably never walk, talk, sit, move. This oh my is God. it. This is it for your child. And I remember going to the sink in the corner of the room and, and I thought, fuck, I can't. Oh, I'm sorry, we're not supposed to swear on our podcast. <laughs> we'll make the exception. <laughs> but I remember thinking, I don't know if I'm going to get sick. And the really weird thing is, is that his case was really unique. And I remember there was like the consultant and the doctor and some junior doctors behind who were practically high-fiving each other because it was this really unique case. Yeah. And I just thought, yeah, not you know. acceptable. Yeah. And then I just cried and cried and cried. And nine years on, he's totally fine. Oh. But it was really hard. I mean, he was having like 40, 50, 60 seizures a day. And they were stopping him swallowing, which was stopping him eating. Right, okay. So we were in Temple Street for a bit. I had a week, it was like the weirdest week of my life, where he could only stay at one end of the bed in a space that was maybe the size of two bits of A4 pages put together because they had all this test equipment on him and they were recording him at the same time. And he had to be watched 24 hours a day. So anytime he had a seizure, I had to push the button so they could record the telemetry of it and the video of it at the same time. And I mean, you know, trying to keep and it was just a good thing that he couldn't move because I mean, was he developmentally delayed? I have no idea. He just did what he was meant to do at his own space and time. But he couldn't move at this point in his life. So he did just sit there. Uh, he did sit there and he did lie there as well. He, I'm trying to think if he could sit up. I think he could. And they brought little toys for us to play with. Um, and then he just grew. So they ended up being, we were really lucky because they were non-epileptic seizures. Okay. I didn't know you could get such a thing. Yeah. So he had like, I can't remember, there was like a big long word that even at the time we could never say. Yeah. <laughs> and then the nurses would come in and say, would you like a break? And I'd say, yeah, no problem. Because he had, like, I couldn't have a toilet break in case he had a seizure. And then there's the high pressure of, like, what if he doesn't have one when he's here? Because he had the kind of 40, 50, 60 a day for 
a few months and then obviously it takes time to get up to Temple Street and stuff. And then, but he did, so that was great. And the nurses said, go on, you take a break and go for a walk. And there's a pub outside Temple Street. So I went and had a brandy and a Baileys and came oh back my in. God. <laughs> I, I, Jesus, they should have been bringing it to you because the stress of that. And I mean, mad thing though, that I think this is the way it was, that you're not meant to get your dinner there as the parents. Yeah. But I, some women just gave him my dinner and I got really bad kidney infection and cystitis from sitting and the stress of it. And then every time I needed to pee or think I needed to pee, I had to call someone. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was like, gosh, I think I need to go again. <laughs> and you had, like, two young kids at home. I'm assuming Rich was looking after those two. Like, the stress yeah. at the whole situation. Yeah, so I'm, I'm guessing this Sorry, whole... I know we have to wrap no, it up, probably. Okay. <laughs> this whole thing then, I'm guessing, um, made you re-evaluate how you're parenting. Because now you're parenting in a crisis and you have two children that aren't in crisis. And yeah. you're trying to keep the show on the road but I have to say right there was no I sort of came into my own okay I, I felt the best I'd ever felt in my whole life I mean I was exhausted I had like loads of like I mean I think to look at me my skin went went, went really weird you know I was sleeping three hours a night for yeah. two years you know that's gonna have a knock-on effect at some point but I totally came into my own I became the best parent I could be given all the circumstances. Because I think you kick into that warrior mum type yeah. persona yeah, yeah, when yeah. something bad happens. Yeah, but it was also really genuine and really authentic. And it was like it was, it was like I dropped into a place of love like I'd never dropped into before in my life for myself, for my kids, for my husband, for everybody. And it was incredible. So we moved as this army of five together and we just got through it. Yeah. And it was totally fine. You, that kind of reminds me of, you know, when somebody says they've got a cancer diagnosis and it's the best thing that's ever happened to them because they see life through a new lens. Yeah. I kind of feel like that happened for you and your family. Like all of a sudden it's like it's us against the world because we have to deal with this day in, day out. Yeah. And yeah. it was totally fine. You know, I remember people coming to the house and being like, um, do you want me to take your baby away because he's crying so much? And I was like, no, yeah. he's fine. You know, and, and my friends were really good because anywhere we'd go, like maybe their husband would come in and they'd obviously been prepped to say, right, you're to take Ramsey off, Beth, and the minute she comes in the house and just leave her have a cup of tea. And he would come back an hour later and be like, there's your child. Why? Why died? <laughs> take this child. Yeah, there you go. Not a problem. Yeah. So, yeah. So tell me at what point. So obviously once Ramsey was well, not well, but better mm. enough that you knew what was going on and how to handle it. You're starting a psychotherapy practice and then you're kind of developing somewhere in your head a, a calm parenting course. Yeah. Well, I what I wanted, I just wanted a space where parents could just like get it out. Because parenting isn't rocket science. I mean, <laughs> maybe everyone's saying, oh my God, Bethan is. But it's not really. It, it, yeah, there's certain things we can say and do to help a child's development. But the biggest thing is to look at the environment and the tone in which we're creating in the house. So if there's a crisis and if we can get through the crisis in a kind of mind frame of mind, like, OK, I can do this then mm. that sets a totally different tone. So I wanted a space. and uh, But as I say that, I do remember, I remember lying in bed sometimes trying to get to sleep when Ramsey was really unwell. 
And I would say to my husband, am I breathing? You'd be like, of course you're breathing. And I say, I didn't even, I mean, like my heart, I felt like a cartoon character where my heart was beating through my chest, mm. you know, waiting for, it was fine being in the hospital, but then you had to wait for the results. Yeah. You had to wait and wait and wait. And the poor consultants, they could phone you at like half eight at night. I don't know what kind of crazy days they'd had. So they'll be like, we'll phone you on this day. So for eight and a half, nine hours, you're waiting for a phone call and you have your phone with you at all times. And then you go to the toilet once and you're like, ah, I forgot my phone. And you're running back, <laughs> like pulling yeah. up your knickers, like, where's my phone? You know, just in case. High alert. Because all the time. Yeah, high yeah. alert all the time. So it really teaches you to kind of how to look after yourself. And I wanted to create a space like that for parents. That's how we met. Yeah. So I, was that one of your first courses? I don't. Oh, okay. So did it feel like it was? No, not at all. <laughs> you seem like an expert. <laughs> did it feel like I didn't know what I was talking about? Yeah, so I came along, I think there were three or four other parents, maybe three, and I I was a member of the Calm Parenting course, and yeah. we did however many weeks, and I remember you used to do lovely little acupuncture things yeah. in our ears, yeah. which were lovely. And I used to feel like that was almost like a tool in my box that would keep me calm. Yeah. Yeah. Because everything is the body. Yeah. And then when I thought about it more, I was like, well, it's a bit crap that I had to quit my job to look after my son. And it was great that then it gave me the opportunity to do to work for myself and have all the stuff that all the benefits and all the tricky bits that come with that. But um, and and the people I worked for in Farron Me were amazing. And they said, anytime you need to take time off, don't worry about it. You know, we'll make it work and you can just make it up whenever you want to. And I was like... I don't have hours to make it up. Yeah. I don't I don't have time in my life. There isn't. And I remember I'd get to work and it would be four in the morning and I'd, I, or I'd been up since four in the morning. And I remember I, before we recorded this, I was saying I used to take Ramsey to Wilton Shopping Centre. So we're in a recording podcast. I don't know. What is it, Steph? Studio. Studio. <laughs> <laughs> and it has like stuff on the wall to make the sound not go outside. Mm. So Ramsey would wake up. I mean, he didn't, he didn't really sleep. So he might sleep between 12 and 3 and then he'd be up crying. Then the other two would wake up. Oh. So I would go to Tesco in Wilton and I would do my shopping. I'd walk around. I'd come back at half six, you know. So I'd just be strolling around from like four until half six Just because it was morning. open. Yeah. Somewhere open and warm, I guess. Yeah. And, yeah. And I would look at everything. I could have done like a stock take for them sometimes. <laughs> you you like, should have asked them yeah, for a job. Yeah, exactly. Do you want me to help you guys? <laughs> And um, so I had to quit my job because that's like unsustainable, yeah. right? But then I thought, well, why isn't there a way that parents can get the answers in their own time mm. outside of work, outside of everything? And that's why I set up one of the reasons I set up the Calm Parenting Community, because it's an app. Someone can type in a question into the chat function and I'll reply back. Yeah, so it's not on social media, which I think is one of the biggest selling points for me anyway, because there are times when I completely put down Facebook or Instagram and don't even look at it. Yeah. So I didn't want to be delving in because what happens sometimes you, if you're in a community, you delve into Facebook, but then you get distracted by everything else. So I love that too. And I had to move your little app to the first page of my apps because I kept forgetting about it. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I can just delve in there. And like you said, you can put in a question or somebody else might have put in a question and then you've done a lovely video or a lovely, even just a reply about something. And you're like, oh, yeah. Because I think when you're in the midst of stuff, you forget. Yeah. You, your logic brain some, sometimes gets lost. Yeah, 100%. And like we, we, we were taking Ramsey for loads of different kinds of therapies and I had sheets. 
and I'd come home with the sheets and then I'd leave a sheet in the car and a kid would stand in the sheet with the wellies and then it would get ripped and soaked. And then I'm like, I don't have the information anymore, Mm. you know? And so, and and it was the on the go support I needed. I needed someone to say to me, okay, well, I needed to tell someone what happened. They say, okay, well, you do this or you do this or go into the meditation section and just lie down and listen to this thing that's going to help you relax or... Um, and then I wanted to develop it because I have never worked with really young children in a therapeutic way. So that's why I got Helen to come in because she specializes in working with kind of two and a half to 10 year olds. Yeah. And I specialize in the 10 plus, you know, age mm. group, having worked with self-harm, suicide for many years. And I just really wanted parents to be able to get the answers when they needed them. Yeah. Talk and to, to a arm, professional. Arm the parents yeah. with the information. Because yeah. I, I think one of your bugbears that keeps coming up in these is, you know, we don't need to fix the kids. The kids are the kids. Yeah. We need to be able to to cope with that ourselves yeah. and deal with it ourselves as parents. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, and it shouldn't be that to speak to a professional is like a wait list of six months or, a, you know, because so often... So often the answer is a lot more simple than we think. And of course, people are complex diagnoses for autism, ADHD, whatever. They're all really complex. But my work looks at the behavior and the emotions. So it doesn't matter what diagnosis you may or may not have. How is this impacting your family? Mm. And ask me a question. What do I do when my kid is trying to be controlling when they're biting, shouting, punching, kicking, bullying, being bullied? All the, how do I get my kid to leave me alone for half an hour? How do I, you know, all the questions that you just ask me in the app yeah. and I will tell you. Or you'll find the you answer know? or you'll find someone that does. Yes. It's just a, a, an instant resource, you know, within a few days at max, you're going to have the answer. Yeah. I mean, I try and check the app three times a day, kind of around nine when I'm having my morning cup of tea, around lunchtime and then at around five. But I've got kids. Sometimes they come home from school and I can't be on my phone that evening. So it will be maybe eight o'clock. And if something big is there, I say to the parent, I've seen this. I'll be back I'm tomorrow back. night. Yeah. You know, which you can't do with, you know, a wait list. You just can't. Yeah. You know, my son's been on a wait list for OT now. And we got a letter this week to say if I responded within two weeks, he might get an appointment. This is two and a half years later. Yeah. If, you know, if I'd been waiting on that and done nothing within the family, we'd be in an awful state by now. Yeah. And, and and the reality is, is that the work with the OT will be lovely, but it might not teach you anything you don't know already. Yeah. And, and, and this isn't undermining OTs. It's because you have gone down the exploratory route of figuring out your son. Yeah. You know, so I just want no parent to wait. Yeah. Right. That's it. And you shouldn't have to quit your job to get the answers no you know because when I quit my job it was fine she says fine (laughs) it was it was fine guys you know it was totally fine but then a friend came down a few years later and she had we were together in a charity we worked for and then she was moving up and up the ranks and she told me how much money she was on and I was like oh okay so that that's where I not lost out Mm -hmm. but that's the difference was that oh okay I could have had that career and had this financial freedom but I chose did I choose was I pushed I don't know to to not do that and I love the life I have 
Yeah. But it's just sometimes when you see what you could have been as well, it was like, oh. But I think when you have a sick child, it does push you into, you know, you you have no choice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, there was no choice. Yeah. And we are all the better for it. Yeah. You know, and, and I think... To this day, the people we met along the way were unbelievable. And I used to sit in Ramsey's room at Temple Street and meditate to him. And I didn't even really know what I was doing. I hadn't really done meditation at this point. But my friend's son had just died of cancer not long before this. He was only four and a half. So I was already in this crazy world. Yeah, so he got the diagnosis in September. Ramsey was born October and the wee boy died in January. Ramsey was unwell by the May, formally diagnosed by May. So all of this really Mm. dark, I mean, there's nothing darker than a child dying of cancer at four and a half. You know, so we were already in this deep, dark world. And she had used meditation. So I was like, fine, I'll give it a shot. And I remember the nurses and and I didn't formally sit there and meditate because I didn't have the brain capacity. But I had this meditation on on a loop in the background. And they used to say, we love coming in here. Because it was so relaxed and sometimes I would sing and sometimes I would chant and 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 it was... It just releases a different energy, doesn't it? Yeah, and it was fine. Yeah. I mean, I I did have to go to the pub for a brandy and a Baileys every now and again. That's okay too. (laughs) That's another form of meditation. In moderation. And having no family around. Yeah. Right? That's the other thing. Having no family. My friend who was pregnant came in to see me once and she came in and she was like, oh, hi, Bethan. Because <laughs> I obviously was smelly and looked a bit weird. Yeah. You know, I hadn't showered for three or four days and obviously looked bonkers because I was sleeping on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> While someone else was paid to sit and watch Ramsey in case he had a seizure in the night. Yeah. It's really weird trying to sleep in a room where there's another adult watching you. <laughs> and then you're so tired, you don't care. You kind of, kind of just wired. like. Yeah. Da, da, da. So guys, that was really interesting. So we got to know you a little better and we certainly know why in you set up the Calm Parenting Community. So thank you. Well, Goramahogat, as they say. <laughs> Kinderama is a multi-activity programme for younger kids. We love to try a bit of everything. Dance, drama, music, yoga, gymnastics, sports and mindfulness all delivered in imaginative classes with original songs, stories, costumes, props and puppets. Kinderama is available in school, in creche or online. Check out kinderama.com for more info.